the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter, at danproftshow, and at danproft. And uh, phase one of that uh, U.S.-China trade deal seems to be moving along, at least uh, this aspect of it, the tariff reduction. China saying yesterday it would reduce tariffs on $75 billion worth of American goods. Uh, Then we'll see if they hold up another piece of this, which is to purchase $200 billion of American goods over the next two years. Uh, And the reduction on the Chinese side is uh, part of a a joint reduction. U.S. agreeing to reduce tariffs on $120 billion worth of Chinese-made goods as part of that deal. And so there's reciprocation. So at least we're off to a a fairly good start with respect to the Chinese and that phase one deal. For more on uh, this, uh, the trade environment, plus the January jobs numbers, 225,000 jobs in January. We're pleased to be joined by Scott Shalady, Scott the Cow Guy, Fox Business Regular. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate Good it. Morning. Good morning. Morning. So, uh, two and a quarter uh, K and the jobs front, you know, continues to be economy that's chugging along, even if there's going to be some uh, uh, GDP revisions down this quarter because of Boeing and coronavirus. We're still, uh, you know, creating jobs and clocking in at a two percent GDP growth. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you take into consideration Iowa caucuses and the State of the Union, this is pretty much icing on the manure cake that the Democrats have been baking for themselves all week. Um, they've Vivid. they've uh, yeah. they've seen some great growth. I mean, look, we had two hundred twenty-five jobs, thousand jobs this month, but that, that's like a two hundred eleven thousand three-month average versus last year's one hundred seventy-five thousand average per month. So things are actually accelerating. I think that the worry's always been how long can this how long can this acceleration you know last right we're we're about ten years into this, but if you go down to Australia, they're in their twenty ninth year of acceleration, so who knows i mean we're just kind of we're still making some great strides while the west rest of the world's not well and the acceler- uh, and the acceleration on that front too we can continue accelerating as we're bringing more people off the sidelines and into the job market, and so you saw a tenth of a point increase in the unemployment rate because of the increase in labor participation. Yeah, there was 183,000 people. So that's pretty significant, and that's exactly what needs to happen. And that's also why you saw the unemployment rate tick up a tad to 3.6. But, you know, all in all, if you look across the numbers, uh, you know, we're really not seeing the inflation kick in. We're not seeing employers compete with uh, wages for employees. I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a solid, solid jobs number. I think, you know, if I had to pick it apart and say the worst thing about it for me is, 
you know, if a 3.5, 3.6 unemployment rate, you should be probably growing better than 2%. That's probably the, the worst takeaway you can get from it. We should see wages ticking up more than they are. So there is still some sort of leak in our economic system. But all in all, uh, compared to everybody else around us, especially Europe, um, we're doing really well. Uh, so we, we talked to Steve Moore earlier in the week uh, from the journal. You know, he wrote the book Trumponomics, so he's a fan, yes. obviously. And uh, but he he did make mention, you know, one of the things that was not in the State of the Union address was anything on the spend side in terms of uh, restraining spending, much less cutting spending. And as you're looking for things that are preventing the economy from clipping along at a rate that it should be, given the low unemployment, uh, could uh, federal spend uh, debt, unfunded obligations, uh, could, could that be crowding out the sort of private investment that would lead to GDP growth? Um. I, uh, maybe a, a little bit, you know, uh, he didn't mention some of those things because probably those are, well, at least like with, say, the national debt, that's one of the only real big things that the Democrat, Democrats can really go after him for. And by the way, I didn't like it when Obama spent as much money as he did and Trump's spending more. Right. So I, I know that he's counting on uh, the economy getting better and have some sort of trickle-down effect to help with tax receipts and the like that will help in that deficit. But right now, he's nowhere near what he wants to get done there. And that's part of the reason why you've heard him really chirp about getting interest rates lower, too. Um, I, I can't imagine cutting interest rates even after this number, especially after this number that we got today. And you know what? That's another one of those things that just doesn't sit well. It doesn't pass the smell test. You want to cut interest rates when we're looking at stocks at all-time record highs. So there still are a few things that don't add up, and I guess that's going to be Powell's you know, job to figure it out. But uh, you know, up until now, we're still doing better than everybody else, and that's what's kind of keeping us going. Yeah, but on the spend side, so here's the uh, sort of the retrenched position of the Democrats, as uh, best exemplified by that uh, that Nobel Prize winner from Middle Earth, Paul Krugman, uh, <laughs> saying that uh, you know, yeah, be sure, you know, I was wrong about the market tanking when Trump was elected. I overstated. I now I corrected it, and they. I corrected my prediction because I was a little uh, upset by the victory, and so I let that get the best of me. But now he's saying, well, sure, because you have a Keynesian play. That's what is allowing the economy to grow, as speaking as a Keynesian, of course. It's all of this government spend that you're describing. That's why you have the kind of economic growth that we're having because it's stimulative. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for that, but you can also stop listening to him after he said I was wrong. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, the government is, is a large part of the economy, obviously, um, but there are other parts of the economy that we have seen a significant rebound in that should give you some comfort as well. So, I'm, I'm believe me, I'm not a big government guy myself, and yes, you're going to get a lot of decent things that come out of what's been happening, especially with the government. And look at the housing market in Washington, D.C. That's a perfect example where everybody else's housing prices were getting killed in 2008. Those held in there and went up. So I don't know, you know, the, the, the government being as big as it is and spending as much money as it is, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'll take what we've gotten so far because it's better than it was. We, we've talked to you before about how important the uh, populace's psyche is when it comes to growth. And uh, Gallup polling finds uh, supermajority people, 60 percent, uh, feel like they're better off than they were a year ago. And 74 percent believe that next year is going to be even better. That sort of optimism uh, doesn't just bode well for Trump's reelection. It, it bodes well for uh, the economy continuing to churn, doesn't it? 
100%. I mean, think about it. If you're in the war room of the Democrats right now, how can you, what do you attack him on? I mean, the, the national debt's kind of a nebulous number that you're not going to get a ton of, of feedback from that or a good play from that. I mean, there's everything else. If you look at what he's done, his policies, been, I mean, you're, you can hate the guy. That's fine. I don't, I don't care. But his policies have been fantastic and it's put us in great stead. So I don't even know how you begin to tell the world that the, this economy is not touching all the corners of our, uh, of, the, of the earth because it is. And all, there are a few people, I'm sure, you can find out, you know, that one person is not doing well because the economy's, even though the economy's doing well. But, but you know, by and large, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty hard to really attack him on anything. And I don't know what they're going to attack him on. I don't know who the, you know, the opponent's going to be. But this is going to be a pretty, pretty difficult thing. And maybe there's going to be some roadkill along the way. So uh, the question I always ask you, just because we should stay on top of this, I mean, are there things that you see in terms of gathering storm clouds other than debt and deficits? No, I mean the only thing you could, no, the only thing you could see happening maybe is uh, a black swan, and that's what they thought this coronavirus was. I wanted to get uh, your, t- and, and since I, I believe you're soon to be knighted by Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, okay. Big reveal. I wanted to get your take on Brexit and and. Um, and, and, you know, the potential for uh, a bilateral trade deal between us and the U.K., but but also this report that came out sort of upon their small eye Independence Day that suggested that uh, the U.K.'s productivity was like the worst in a couple of hundred years. And this was a continued assault on the idea that the U.K. should break away from the EU. And just so your handle on all of that with respect to Britain's future. Um, I would say that. The, the oh, general well, they had two referendums on leaving Europe. They really had the first one in 2016, but then this election for uh, Boris Johnson was the next referendum on leaving Europe, and it was a landslide. Um, and and the, the general populace is very very pleased about that. There are going to be some bumps and bruises along the way. Their currency is taking a little bit of a hit. Uh, there's a, a a little bit of a worry about what's next. And do we get these? Or we as a British citizen do the trade deals actually come to fruition? However, I would say this. You know, there has been a few things that have come across our desk here that's, you know, um, Nissan is threatening to open up plants in uh, Great Britain because they are getting sick of the European Union. And the European Union is really faltering. I mean, we've got an interest rate for our 10-year yield here at 1.58% right now as we speak. You know, France's 10-year yield is a negative. So is Germany's. You know, so there's a lot of problems still over there. And that's something I don't think you want to have that yoke, uh, European yoke around your neck. So, It's probably going to get a little worse for the U.K. before it gets better, but there are some big manufacturers out there that are looking to start or move things to the U.K., and on top of it, if we do get a trade deal with the the U.K., that will be even better. So I'm I'm very bullish on what can happen with them outside of the European Union. He is Scott Shalady, Fox Business regular. Scott, the cow guy, Shalady, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Have a good weekend. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show president had quite a morning yesterday from the national prayer breakfast where he uh took less than less than subtle shots at both Nancy Pelosi and Mitt Romney to the uh, White House quiddle party 
where he uh, did the same, but also made some salient points about the process and the implications of the process just concluded for this country. He, he said something, too, important about um, the Democrats. You know, all my life I wasn't in politics, but I'd say if you're a politician, you want to say we're going to lower taxes. They want to raise taxes. So they have open borders, sanctuary cities, raise everybody's taxes. Get rid of everybody's health care, 180 million people in the United States, and they're really happy. And we're going to give you a health care that's going to cost more money than the country could make in 30 years if it really does well. That's one year. So I've always said they're lousy politicians, but they do two things. They're vicious and mean. Vicious. These people are vicious. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. And she wanted to impeach a long time ago when she said, I pray for the president. I pray for the president. She doesn't pray. She may pray, but she prays for the opposite. <laughs> but I doubt she prays at all. And these are vicious people. And they probably will. But here's the thing. This time around, Republicans stuck together, too, with the exception of Mitt Romney. But generally speaking, and particularly in the House, and President Trump recognized Kevin McCarthy, who he thinks will be Speaker McCarthy come January because of the performance during this proceeding. For more on impeachment and a couple of other matters, we're pleased to be joined by Brian Stile, congressman from Wisconsin's 1st Congressional District, just north of the Cheese Curtain. He is the man who replaced Paul Ryan in Congress. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. What about this? So what's the takeaway among House Republicans, you and your colleagues, after this has now been put to bed, at least for the time being, and the president's comments about the rank unfairness of the process and the uh, dangerous precedent that was set by House and Senate Democrats? Yeah, I mean, Speaker Pelosi can stand up there at the State of the Union and try to tear apart a speech, but she can't rip up the successes that President Trump has been delivering for our country, the economic success, strengthening the military, uh, you know, standing in the hall during the State of the Union. Union, I thought Trump gave a great speech honoring uh, a number of, you know, terrific American stories. And then you end with the end of Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech. It, it just juxtaposes the difference of the economic successes and wins that we're having on our side and the frustration that continues to bubble on the left. Isn't it time for uh, the Democrats to come up with a new fashion statement than that uh, suffragette thing that they're doing? You know, you and your colleagues just spitballing different things they can do if they want to offer some sort of of a visible protest? My hope is we come back next Congress and there's fewer of them and that we have the speaker's gavel. Uh, that, to me, would be the ultimate uh, turn on this. They can wear whatever they want. I just want to make sure that we win back the House and turn this country around. And is it is it the belief, as President Trump said yesterday, uh, that the impeachment, number one, didn't really hurt President Trump, and number two, it may actually help a lot of swing district races for Republicans come the fall? I think time and again, when I talk to folks at home, you know, people just look at the partisanship in Washington run by Nancy Pelosi and just roll their eyes. I did you know, five listening sessions across southeast Wisconsin, just north of the Wisconsin-Illinois border is my district, Janesville, over to Kenosha and up towards Milwaukee. Five listening sessions, hundreds and hundreds of people, dozens and dozens of questions. I got one question about impeachment. The American people are focused in on the real problems, right? The rising cost of health care. They're focused in on are we strengthening our military? Are we protecting Social Security and Medicare? And I think watching the Democrats travel down this path on a partisan impeachment process just has a lot of folks rolling their eyes and realizing that there's not a lot of solutions being answered by Nancy Pelosi and the left in the successes that we're getting with President Donald Trump. Now, your district is, in some respects, sort of a bellwether, not maybe over Overall, 
But certain portions of your district, uh, you got trades guys, the blue-collar folks, uh, the blue-collar boom that President Trump talked about in his senior speech. How are those somewhat swing voters in your district, what are they saying about President Trump? How do you read their attitudes and look at how that will impact Wisconsin, how that will impact the 2020 race? Great question. You know, the district runs that I-94 corridor from the state line up towards the Milwaukee airport. And if you've ever had the opportunity to drive that, what you see is an absolute building boom from businesses that are putting up shop in Wisconsin along that corridor, putting up help wanted signs. We're starting to see the beginning of rising wages. Uh, you referenced the trades workers. You know, these men and women are having work to do. I mean, they're building buildings. They're you know installing all of the infrastructure that's required for these new buildings that are coming in. That's a direct result of the economic policies put in place uh, by this administration. And you can argue with, you know, all sorts of stuff, but it's hard to argue with the economic success when it's that tangible along that I-94 corridor from, you know, from the Kenosha area up towards Milwaukee. And people are excited. They're seeing jobs. They're seeing the beginning of raising wages. They don't want to take a step back. They want to take a step forward. And that's what this election is going to be about in November. Over the last decade, about 120,000 Illinoisans have left this state for uh, your state. They've fled north of the Cheddar Curtain, and a lot of them are settling in your district. And I wonder uh, how things are going, you know, since you're right there uh, on the border, how you understand things are going and and what you're hearing from constituents, including new constituents, in terms of sort of quality of life at the particular price point, economic opportunities, uh, Foxconn and these other campuses on that corridor that you were describing. Do a little compare and contrast for us from a Wisconsin perspective. The Bears-Packers games at the bars are getting a little rowdier now. More people from Illinois. Uh, the economic problems that uh, that Illinois has and comes to Wisconsin, which has a budget that's balanced. You know, the debate in the Wisconsin State House right now is what to do uh, with the hundreds of millions of excess revenue, tax cuts or more spending. That's our debate. Very different than the Illinois debate. And that's really from, you know, eight years of Governor Walker turning the state of Wisconsin around that we're in that position to have that discussion. We're getting uh, homes get, are getting built on the Wisconsin side of the border as people are coming north. Uh, but there's plenty of jobs. As you noted, Foxconn is coming. Herringbow, which is the gummy bear maker, is about to open a new facility in Pleasant Prairie just across the border. Uh, and then we have have long-standing companies in Wisconsin that are expanding, that are feeling confident about the economy. Uh, and I talked to those job creators, and they like what they're seeing in the policies from Washington. They're feeling confident in their ability to grow. And you know, I encourage more people to move north across the line and take advantage of the economic situation that we have in Wisconsin and the balanced budget, thanks in large part to eight years of uh, Republican leadership and Governor Scott Walker's leadership in the state of Wisconsin. And, and, and how are you feeling about Wisconsin in terms of being a swing state in 2020? Is President Trump going to be able to hold on to Wisconsin? We are going to be ground zero. There's a reason that the National Democrats put their convention uh, downtown Milwaukee, and it's not because Bill Clinton would rather bar hop downtown Milwaukee <laughs> than maybe Miami <laughs> Beach. They put their convention in Milwaukee because they know they need to win the state of Wisconsin to uh, defeat President Trump, and we're not going to let it happen happen. Um, I think the the critical aspect here is to make sure that we're out uh, telling our story about the economic successes uh, that we're seeing. And that's where I spend a lot of my time. I'll be flying home tonight uh, and speaking uh, to a Republican Lincoln Day dinner downtown Milwaukee tonight. I'll be out in Waukesha County tomorrow telling the story of the success that we're seeing and tying it back to the policies that were put in place that gave rise to, to the success that we're seeing. That's the real key to make sure that we get people to understand the connection between the economic success with the policies that were put in place 
and then tell them how imperative it is that come November, every single person that is happy with the direction of the country, that every single person that understands what low unemployment rates mean, come out and vote and uh, reelect the president. He is Congressman Brian Stile. He's U.S. Representative uh, from Wisconsin's first congressional district right over the border in Kenosha, Janesville area, as he said. Representative Stile, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. Peggy Noonan, no fan of President Trump. In, in this uh, article I'm, about to, I'm referencing and about to draw from, she describes the president as, quote, a bad man and half mad. Unquote. But she also says this about the Democrats' bad week and what the president did at the State of the Union address that uh, exacerbated the badness of their week in addition to the acquittal, in addition to the administration of the Iowa caucus, in addition to Nancy Pelosi's temper tantrum. She writes of the president's State of the Union speech. This was the president putting the Republican Party on the side of the nobodies of all colors as opposed to the somebodies, the nobodies of all colors, as opposed to the somebodies. Trump is going for black and Hispanic men, and the Democrats are foolish not to see it. Writes Noonan. And let me tell you something. That is a keen insight and encapsulation of what the president was doing in part in that State of the Union address. And it was exemplified by all of the quote unquote nobodies who he recognized from the dais. They were sitting in the gallery. And told their stories, whether it was Raul Ortiz, the Border Patrol agent, uh, or Paul Morrow, the African-American business owner, one of 19 kids who uh, went to uh, who started out picking beans, one of 19 kids picking beans in Alabama to serving our country in the military, to being discharged after he was injured, to being a air conditioning repairman. We had him on the show on Thursday night. His story bears repeating to then now being a multimillion uh, to, to, to being the CEO of a multimillion dollar business and benefiting from the Opportunity Zone legislation the president signed into law to the mom and daughter from Pennsylvania, African-American mother and daughter, the daughter benefiting from an opportunity scholarship and the president wanting to do more. Those scholarships, the school choice initiatives that disproportionately benefit minority families in urban centers and criminal justice reform. So many issues. That's right. But one of the other ways in which you stand with the quote unquote nobodies, the deplorables, the credulous boomer rubes against the somebodies, the managerial elite, the highly educated champagne socialists, the people who are somebody in society. So they say <laughs> So they say is you the way one of the ways you stand with them is you stand for the rule of law. And that's what the president did when he addressed the matter of border security and immigration policy. Congress has 10 days left to pass a bill that will fund our government, protect our homeland, and secure our very dangerous southern border. Now is the time for Congress to show the world that America is committed to ending illegal immigration, 
and putting the ruthless coyotes, cartels, drug dealers, and human traffickers out of business. Yeah. And uh, contrasted that with who the Democrats stand with, which is big city politicians, somebody's big city politicians that say federal rules of law as it pertains to immigration don't apply to us and our communities, even at the expense of our constituents, American families, like the family of Rocky Jones. Here is just one tragic example. In December 2018, California police detained an illegal alien with five prior arrests, including convictions for robbery and assault. But as required by California's sanctuary law, local authorities released him. Days later, the criminal alien went on a gruesome spree of deadly violence. He viciously shot one man going about his daily work. He approached a woman sitting in her car and shot her in the arm and in the chest. He walked into a convenience store and wildly fired his weapon. He hijacked a truck and smashed into vehicles, critically injuring innocent victims. One of the victims is a terrible, terrible situation. Died, 51-year-old American named Rocky Jones. Rocky was at a gas station when this vile criminal fired eight bullets at him from close range, murdering him in cold blood. Rocky left behind a devoted family, including his brothers, who loved him more than anything else in the world. One of his grieving brothers is here with us tonight. Jody, would you please stand? Jody, thank you. And Jody Jones was very emotional upon being recognized by the president in remembrance of his brother, Rocky. And when we come back, I want to get into this uh, piece of legislation. Tucker Carlson mentioned in his show the new way forward legislation being pushed by House Democrats and what that would mean on this topic. Sharpening the contrast between President Trump standing with nobodies and Democrats uninterested in the plight of the nobodies. This is the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So I want to pick up uh, the conversation we were having about uh, immigration policy and how that the, the, the choice that it presents, the rule of law, everybody is equal before the law, the somebodies and the nobodies. That's President Trump's proposition. And you don't get to suspend the rule of law because you're looking to pander to political constituents to uh, to pander to and frankly uh, bring in reliable voters which is what uh, the big city Democrats and some Vichy Republicans like in Illinois have done with these sanctuary city, county, state designations. We're looking to pander to for the purposes of enlisting a new group of voters since we're having some problems with the existing group of legitimate voters, meaning American citizens. And so this legislation that has been co-sponsored by 44 House Democrats including, of course, Omar and AOC, led by Representative Chewy Garcia, Jesus Garcia, of course, from Illinois. He's the individual who replaced El Gaito, 
Louis Gutierrez from Chicago in the House. The new way forward essentially argues convictions should not lead to deportations. Remember during the Obama years, look, we can all agree people in this country illegally who've committed crimes should be deported. And we're supposed to take the political class at their word and then say, well, okay, now now that you've made that verbal commitment, now we can talk about a pathway to to permanent status for the dreamers and other such immigration reforms that would allow more people into this country more quickly, normalize and legalize the people that are here illegally at present. Under the New Way Forward Act, crimes of moral turpitude are eliminated entirely as justification for deport for deportation. And the category of aggravated felony gets circumscribed as well. Reading from a Fox News account here, if the bill passed the House and Senate and was signed into law by the president, which it won't be. But this gives you an idea where the Democrat Socialist Party is something to consider as you cast your votes for president and down ballot. uh, Just a. What, eight months from now, nine months from now, if it were to be the law, there would no longer be any crimes, any crimes that automatically require deportation. None. One crime, falsifying a passport, will be made immune from deportation, no matter what. Falsifying a passport, you know, like um, the 9-11 terrorists did. Don't We don't care about fake government documents. Not a big deal. Current uh, U.S. law makes drug addiction grounds for deportation because why wouldn't it? Well, we we want people to come to this country who want to build a better life for themselves and building a better life for yourselves, taking advantage of opportunity, uh, being a provider for your family means keeping it together so you can work and be productive and be law abiding and all of the obvious things. Current U.S. law makes drug addiction grounds for deportation. The bill would eliminate that. Current law also states that those who have committed drug crimes abroad or crimes involving moral turpitude are ineligible to immigrate here. That gets abolished, too, under this. So, for example, a Mexican drug cartel leader could be released from prison, then freely come to America immediately. And if he wants, he could come here illegally. It wouldn't be a crime because and uh, the bill also decriminalizes illegal entry into America, even by those previously deported. You know how you eliminate uh, illegal immigration? You just make it legal. You You just take the word illegal out. This is the Julian Castro way. I mean, this is back, you know. Obamacare is a backdoor takeover of the nation's health care system. This is a backdoor elimination of our borders is what this legislation is. Criminalizing illegal entry into America is white supremacist, according to the bill or, or the, the, you know, the corresponding propaganda that's promoting the bill. Having borders is an example of white supremacy. To detain illegal immigrants, ICE would have to prove in court that the illegal immigrants are dangerous or a flight risk. But, of course, ICE wouldn't be allowed to use a detainee's prior criminal behavior as proof that he or she is dangerous. That's also banned. ICE would also have to overcome more hurdles. If the detainee claims to be gay or trans under 21 or can't speak English and an interpreter isn't immediately available, uh, then um, you can't just deport them. They're a protected class. So there's that additional levels of scrutiny for those that have those identity attributes, you see. How about uh, using taxpayer money to bring deported criminals back into America? The bill not only abolishes your right to control who lives in your country, but it invents a new right to return, the right to come home. The bill orders the government to create a pathway for those previously deported to apply to return to their homes and families in the United States as long as they would have been an eligible. They would have been eligible to stay under the new law. Yeah. <laughs> We deported you under the old law. We're going to sort of ex post fact you in, in the, the, the uh, conference of new rights 
so that we're expunging the essentially the basis for your deportation and we're incentivizing financing a pathway for you to come back to this country because under this law we don't have any borders so there's no reason there's no possibility effectively of being here illegally so there's no deportation just to give you a scale on this tens of thousands of people we played the audio from Ted Cruz and others i mean this is going back to the obama administration and before tens of thousands i would argue hundreds of thousands of people are kicked out of this country for all kinds of crimes or should be violent crimes from 2002 to 2018 Half a million people were deported for illegal entry or reentry into America. Under this bill, they all get a plane ticket back at your expense. What do you think? And just in terms of the human cost of these policies or even uh, baby steps in this direction, like sanctuary city and sanctuary county and sanctuary state policies. I'll give you an example in Illinois, two families that I know, the McCann family and the Brady family. McCann family from Chicago. The Brady family from central Illinois, the Muhammad area done by Champaign, done by U of I. Uh, we profiled them in a campaign in 2018. Uh, their stories. My wife was killed by an illegal alien who was driving drunk. The uh, man was never taken into custody. It's a tragedy that there is no justice for her. DUI could have been arrested at the hospital, wasn't. Fled to Guatemala. No justice for Eric Brady and his deceased wife who was killed by this drunk driver. Brian McCann and his brother Denny, just like Rocky and Jody Jones. My brother Denny, we called him, as he was crossing Kedzie Avenue. Saul Chavez, who was severely inebriated, hit my brother and dragged him better part of a block. And my brother died a violent death. Standing for the rule of law for the nobodies who have needlessly seen family members put into the ground because of this marks these marxist policies advanced by the somebodies that is a real contrast that's a real choice to consider in advance of november this is the damn project the more you listen the more you'll know this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, uh, you remember mo- the movie uh, Brewster's Millions, Richard Pryor. Let me introduce you to uh, Mayor Pete's Billions, as in billionaires. Interesting uh, in Forbes, Mayor Pete's Wine Cave crew, to uh, go back to the little spat he and Elizabeth Warren had a couple debates ago. On the eve of uh, the New Hampshire primary, I wonder if this will be brought up again in tonight's debate. Forty of America's 600, roughly, billionaires are Mayor Pete, Mannequin Pete, campaign contributors, fresh off of his uh, overachieving in Iowa, even though we still don't have those results, (laughs) not finalized, still waiting for some of the uh, results that were snail mailed into the state party because the individuals at the uh, particular caucus sites couldn't get a hold of anybody at the state party. What a cluster. Ken, Len and Emily Bolvatnik, mm-hmm. Christopher Mc, McCowan, husband of Abigail Johnson, like a Johnson and Johnson. Wendy Schmidt, wife of Eric Schmidt, you know, Google. David Geffen, movies, record labels. Interestingly, as you're looking through this uh, 
rundown that Forbes provided, how many of these have also been previously contributors to Joe Biden and, you know, in others, just generally the, you know, Democrat National Committee and so on and so forth. Catherine Rayner, Daniel Ziff, Estee Lauder, Joel Carroll Lauder, wife of Ronald Lauder, Estee Lauder, Barry Diller, another media type, Reed Hastings at Netflix. He's with uh, Mannequin Pete, Jonathan Gray, John Stryker, all billionaires. Jim, uh, formerly Colonel Jim Pritzker, now Colonel Jennifer Pritzker, a Republican giver significantly in Chicagoland and in Illinois with uh, Mannequin Pete based on what? Identity politics, of course. Reed Hoffman, CEO of LinkedIn, founder of LinkedIn, all the big tech companies and uh, all the high financiers, all donors to Mannequin Pete, all camped out in Mannequin Pete's wine cave. And it's another reason among many, including, and I mean, it's sort of chicken and egg argument, why uh, Jeet Hare over at uh, the nation, nation.com, uh, pen to peace. Bye-bye, Biden. Uh, he had a dismal performance in Iowa. He's tracking for another one in New Hampshire. We'll see about that much vaunted firewall he has in South Carolina. Uh, and uh, the debate continues not about uh, Biden being the nominee, but whether Biden makes it to Super Tuesday. The real conversation then is, where does Obama and Clinton world go? Do they throw in with uh, one billionaire who's not with Mannequin Pete? That would, of course, be Michael Bloomberg. Or do they do they go where the money is with Bloomberg? Or do they take a flyer on identity politics on steroids and try to make history again and make that the value proposition of the DNC, of the Democrat Party in 2020? We're going to make history the first openly gay president, even though he's only been a mayor of a town of 100,000 people. And even though he isn't generating a lot of excitement in among key coalition partners for the Democrat vote model, which, of course, starts with minority voters. We will see. But he's got a lot of billionaires in his corner that have a lot of political sway. Maybe the collection of them can add up to even more to, to even more than Michael Bloomberg. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You can follow us, danprofshow.com, on Twitter, at Dan Prof, or at Dan Prof Show, or at least until we're uh, knocked off those platforms. And uh, joining us now, talk a little bit about um, how we've moved from uh, an Obama administration where you had uh, the IRS targeting groups based on their political and religious beliefs. Remember that, using 501c3 status or the conferring of it as a political weapon. To uh, present day, 2016 forward, where uh, the government doesn't need to do it formally because they have uh, targeting being done on their behalf, the big government politicians, by big tech. And uh, Peter Hassan has written about this both with respect to um, Facebook and with respect to Google recently. And as we look ahead to the 2020 election and we're beyond some of the uh, conspiracy theories about Russian collusion uh, what about the impact big tech could have on 2020? It's a worthwhile conversation, and that's why we're going to have it. Peter Hassan is a senior investigative reporter at The Daily Caller, author of the just-released The Manipulators, 
Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Big Tech's War on Conservatives. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I want to start with uh, pro-life organizations and uh, this piece that I read from you at uh, thefederalist.com about how Facebook uh, and uh, other social media platforms are essentially uh, uh, censoring, to use the term, even though it's really appropriately applied in a government setting, but but essentially uh, uh, washing pro-life messages and pro-life groups from their platforms and doing it in a less than transparent way, starting with the uh, well-respected and well-known Susan B. Anthony list. Yes, yeah, so these tech companies are, are um, um, in large part just just um, entirely aligned with the um, abortion industry. Um, and so the um, um, uh, um, so groups like Planned Parenthood and, and um, um, other pro-choice groups like that have essentially deputized these tech companies into doing their dirty work for them, i.e. silencing pro-lifers because they know that they can't compete with the pro-life argument on the, on the, the, the merits of, of the argument. So they have to silence pro-lifers. And so these tech companies have been, have been, have been happy to, to really do the dirty work um, for the pro-choice groups. So, uh, the Susan B. Anthony list, you know, this is a widely respected um, uh, pro-life group. Um, um, you know, their, their president launched a group to help pro-life women um, uh, get into office. So it's very, you know, uh, uh, have, you know, admirable goal, ad- admirable group. Um, but, but they've, found themselves on the receiving end of, of, uh, of uh, these big tech bullies uh, just before the 2018 uh, elections. So make it concrete, um, like a, a, an illustration would be, say, for, for example, Susan B. Anthony List, as you recount, uh, supported Marsha Blackburn in a, in a hotly mm-hmm. contested Senate race in Tennessee against uh, Phil Bredesen. And uh, when Susan B. Anthony List wanted to deliver a pro-life message to people who are pro-life, contrast the positions between Blackburn and Bresden, that's when Facebook stepped in. Exactly. And they deleted multiple ads from the Susan B. Anthony list that, that were, you know, contrasting, uh, uh, you know, Bredesen's support for, for, you know, taxpayer funded abortion with Blackburn's, you know, pro-life uh, 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 platform. Um, and so, uh, you know, Facebook went ahead and blocked those ads, and they weren't the only ads that that Facebook blocked from the Susan B. Anthony list. Well, and, he, and here's, a, he, here's the thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but here's the thing about Facebook, because uh, Zuckerberg was uh, received so much criticism from the left, and it mm-hmm. continues with Soros criticizing him for not doing enough to essentially eliminate dissent. Now, they call it fact-checking, uh, you know, edit- uh, exercising editorial discretion, but it's really trying to silence opposing viewpoints. And so, it, it, and, it, and Zuckerberg made a big statement about, you know, we're not going to be in the business of being an arbiter on content where people disagree, whether it's on a particular political issue or cultural issue. Uh, yet here is an example where what uh, Zuckerberg has testified to before Congress has written about uh, in the Wall Street Journal 
this isn't actually the reality of the practice of Facebook. So perhaps you have a sort of a terms of use claim against Facebook here, the way that uh, Dennis Prager and PragerU has lodged a terms of use claim against YouTube and its parent company, Google. Exactly. And, and um, it's, it's important to keep in mind that all of these, these uh, um, attacks on Facebook from you, know, the George Soros types, um, really they serve a larger goal, which is, 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 is really obscures just how far these tech companies have, have come in terms of stepping up their uh, censorship and, and the way that they have changed their platforms to benefit established outlets like CNN and the Washington Post. Um, and so really when you have George Soros criticizing Facebook, it's, it's honestly a great thing for Facebook because it, it um, makes them appear as if they're biased, because, or as, sorry, as if they aren't biased, because, oh, the left is criticizing as against and the right is criticizing us. And, it's, and it, in reality, everything yeah. they've done has helped the left and hurt the right. And so it's really a big leaf. And and you you point out something too. It's like these these are not um, uninterested observers there that are in charge of Facebook. So why should we expect they wouldn't use their company to leverage their position? Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the COO of Facebook, uh, is a one million dollar donor to Planned Parenthood, and uh, Zuckerberg and his wife donated uh, almost a million bucks in Facebook shares to a leftist donor network that uh, in Silicon Valley that doles out millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood and its affiliates every year. So why wouldn't they use their platform to censor views that are otherwise uh, financing to, to uh, oppose, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, um, and and, and it's, it's not just the people at the top either, as, as astounding as, as that might be. It's uh, all the way, it's top to bottom bias at these uh, organizations. Um, so what I found in the course of, um, you know, researching this book and talking to sources on the insides of these companies um, and things like that is there really is is just um, the, a, a concerted effort among many employees of these companies to use their job for political purposes because they are well aware of the power that they have. You know, um, at the uh, you know at, 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 at um, at their hands, and yeah. they're intent on using it to benefit their political allies and hurt, using it to hurt their political opponents. Well, just this week, um, to, to loop in another one of these platforms, Twitter uh, suspended James O'Keefe's uh, tw- Twitter mm-hmm. account, uh, Project Veritas, temporarily suspended it, not permanently, I guess, for now. Uh, and for what exactly? It was uh, he was. Uh, uh, he was uh, criticizing uh, and and criticizing posting about these San- these Bernie Sanders staffers that he got on undercover video saying all kinds of things about <laughs> gulags and violence and so forth, and, uh, uh, and 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 Twitter interceded on behalf effectively of the Sanders campaign. Exactly, and that honestly is, is what we've seen from these platforms time and time again is they really come you know come to the defense of the left any time they're you know under any time they're facing criticism for their own actions um it's it's, it's a uh, uh james o'keefe is a, a perfect example um of that and you know and uh, you know as you 
we're saying it's not a, a permanent ban yet, uh, because as we we've seen that they typically use these uh, temporary bans as as kind of a um, precursor to the permanent bans. Right. It's sort of like. So it, I, like, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if Twitter at some point takes them off the platform completely because that's just how biased they are, and I think they're scared of what he can do. And it's the you, you want to create the appearance of uh, of a you know a disciplinary an incremental disciplinary mm-hmm. process where you I we suspend you first and that's your warning and then if you violate again then we can permanently ban you and so on and so forth to pretend like there's some sort of a natural progression. Well, when we come back, I want to talk about this other piece that you've uh, penned about Google and some evidence uh, that has that uh, you reviewed regarding uh, Google and it's lying about its bias mm-hmm. and what it's doing. Uh, we'll be back with more of Peter Hassan. He's a senior investigative reporter at The Daily Caller, author of The Manipulators, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Big Tech's War on Conservatives. We'll be back with more Peter Hassan right after this. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking with uh, Peter Hassan, senior investigative reporter at The Daily Caller, author of The Manipulators, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Big Tech's War on Conservatives. And Speaking of Google, uh, let's start by recalling exactly the coming together that was orchestrated at Google by its senior executives, starting with uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders, after the 2016 election, after Trump won. Remember, they had this big drum circle cry session lamenting what had transpired, feeling unsafe in America after Trump's victory. And uh, essentially, as was reported at the time, vowing to make sure that it never happened again, as they say in this meeting. Listen to Sergey Brin addressing the uh, assembled Googlers. Okay, folks, I know this is probably not the most joyous uh, TJF we have had. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, let's face it, most uh, people here are uh, pretty upset and pretty sad for uh, because of the election. Um, but there's another group, a uh, small group that we should also think about who are very excited about the legalization of pot. That was the silver lining. Uh, so, listen to Sundar Pinchai, the CEO at the time, uh, breaking down. There is a lot of fear within Google. You know, I've gotten a lot of emails, uh, you know, to my note back. Uh, you know, and, you know, I would tell most Googlers there are people who are very afraid. Uh, and, you know, Sergey pointed out, the, uh, you, know, uh, you know, many groups, you know, women, blacks, you know, people who are afraid based on religion, people who are afraid because they are not sure of their status, uh, the LGBTQ community, and I can go on. There, there is a lot of fear. And so I think, I think it's important to reach out, be aware of that fear, uh, I would be sensitive and try and talk and have conversations uh, to the extent possible. We are so deeply committed to our values. Uh, you know, Sergey mentioned uh, mentioned at the start, nothing will change. I think we'll stand up always for the values we uh, believe in, and especially I think in a society 
you stand up for people uh, who are minorities. And that's what defines a society, and we'll continue to do that. Uh-huh. And it turned out the only thing they had to fear was full employment. And this is before the James Damore matter and uh, everything else we know about Google, including some reporting by our friend Peter Hassan, who we return to now. Uh, Peter, uh, t- talk to us about uh, the uh, documents that you've reviewed that give lie to what uh, Google is saying publicly about their even-handedness when it comes to search results and the like. Yeah, so um, you know that video really just shows what what Google employees um, how how they view Trump's election, and from top to bottom, they viewed it as something they should have done more to prevent, and something that they w- would work damn hard to make sure it didn't happen again. Um, and so. Uh, as an example, I obtained documents that I published in the book um, that um, uh, show Google employees discussing after Trump's election, how can we make sure that this doesn't happen again? And, um, and their answer was, we need to take a look at the search function and we need to, we need to change it and we need to make sure that the information people are getting is going to make them not vote for Trump. Um, and so it's not a coincidence that since the 2016 election, Google has totally overhauled its search function um, to benefit what Google calls, quote unquote, authoritative sources. Of course, authoritative according to whom? According to Google. And as, as the, the internal documents I've, I've seen show, Google employees really only consider authoritative if it's really the uh, uh, liberal mainstream media, which, you know, as, as any conservative who's dealt with media bias knows, these outlets are not authoritative. They're, they're one-sided, they're biased, and they're pushing a political agenda. But what happens now is because Google has changed its algorithms to benefit those outlets, now Google is essentially becoming an extension of that same mainstream media bias to the left. Um, and so really, and so what we're seeing now is where once Google was, you know, a way for people to just search for information um, and to find information that, you know, the mainstream media wouldn't, wouldn't tell them. Now Google is just becoming part of the mainstream media bubble. Um, and, and it's, and that's absolutely going to have an effect on the 2020 election. And that's kind of the entire point was to have an impact on the 2020 election. Um, and, and so it, it, it's, it's just another example time, time again, since the 2016 election, the employees inside these tech companies have, have, have done everything they can to make sure that their products make the chances of a Trump uh, 2020 uh, election win uh, far less likely. So, um, so and, and that's not just Google, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's all of them. So, what what are some things that could be done to uh, uh, compel, perhaps, uh, Facebook, Google, Twitter to live by the terms they say they abide? Uh, when it's clearly when it's uh, when you've clearly demonstrated that they're not um, short of breaking. I'm not much of an antitrust guy, but Robert Epstein, yeah, a Harvard, Harvard, Harvard trained psychologist, has talked about uh, a Google 
uh, publishing its algorithms that drive its search results. Uh, so you're using transparency as a way to sort of uh, make Google accountable, self-accountable. There's also been the discussion with uh, uh, outlets or platforms like Facebook to remove the uh, insulation they have from uh, defamation lawsuits, treat mm-hmm. them like a publisher. Um, are, are those a couple of reforms that uh, you think would be helpful? And if not, is there something else that, that we could do short of getting into the Elizabeth Warren camp of breaking everybody up? Um, well, I'm, 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 um, I'm, I am a fan of the Epstein um, proposal of, of basically making them be transparent about um, how their algorithms work and what, um, what exactly goes into them. Because right now we don't have that at all. And you just have to take the word of these biased actors that they aren't acting in a biased manner, which is absurd. Um, and then another thing, thing that I think the people on the right can do, and um, you know, I'm, I'm on the same page as you. I'm not, I'm not a big uh, uh, antitrust guy. I'm not, I'm not sure it would help anything to break these companies up. Um, you know, to give the government more power. But I, I do think one thing that people on the right should be doing, at least in office, is they should be threatening to break these companies up even if you don't fall through on it at least just to to make them fear you a bit because at the moment these tech companies fear the left and they fear their employees who are also on the left and they don't fear the right at all Hmm. and the right really needs to make these tech companies at least respect uh their 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 power a bit um, if they're going to have any chance of, of, of a playing of an even playing field. He is Peter Hassan, senior investigative reporter at The Daily Caller and author of The Manipulators, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Big Tech's War on Conservatives. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I just wanted to follow up, continue our conversation that we were having with uh, Peter Hassan from The Daily Caller, the author of the book, The Manipulators, about big tech and its uh, disingenuousness with respect to their values as they so articulate them. You heard from the Googleists, Google, Facebook, Twitter, what they say about uh, their terms of use and then how that actually works in practice. And, of course, in addition to... Uh, the documents that Peter Hassan uncovered and memorialized in his book. We have the undercover interviews by Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, who's now been temporarily suspended from Twitter uh, with respect to Twitter engineers, with respect to those on the inside of Google, the James Damore types of the world. So the evidence is pretty substantial. Um, But the question is, well, okay, so what's the impact? Let's say let's say that everything that is being said is true about their desire to make sure 2020 isn't a repeat of 2016. Let's stipulate to that for the sake of this conversation. What impact could those big tech companies have if they came together to support the same candidate and try to wire their platforms in advance of that particular candidate for president? In other words, who's ever running against Trump? What kind of impact could they have? 
Well, Robert Epstein, who we referenced in our conversation with Peter Hassan, is this Harvard-trained psychologist who spent six years looking at Google. And he testified last summer, along with our friend here, colleague Dennis Prager, about how Google operates, specifically Google. You know, you've got Prager University litigation pending against YouTube and Google. And here's what uh, Epstein said about Google's potential for impact, as well as the impact it had in 2016 in that election that uh, should provide some insight into what it could do in 2020 if it got together with some of its uh, fellow travelers in big tech. I reach out to diverse audiences because I believe the threats posed by Google, and to a lesser extent Facebook, are so serious that everyone needs to know about them. Here are just three disturbing findings from my research which adheres to the very highest standards of scientific integrity. Number one, in 2016, Google's search algorithm likely impacted undecided voters in a way that shifted at least 2.6 million votes to Hillary Clinton whom I supported. I know this because I preserved more than 13,000 election-related searches prior to Election Day, and Google's search results were significantly biased in favor of Secretary Clinton. I know the number of votes that shifted because I've conducted dozens of controlled experiments that measure how opinions shift when search results are biased. I call this shift SEAM, the search engine manipulation effect, which I first published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2015. Biased search results can easily produce shifts in the opinions and voting preferences of undecided voters by up to 80% in some demographic groups because people blindly trust high-ranking search results over lower ones. SEAM is an especially dangerous form of influence because it is, in effect, subliminal. It also leaves no paper trail for authorities to trace. It's an example of a short-lived or, quote, ephemeral experience. That's a phrase you'll find in internal emails that have leaked recently from Google. And uh, this is the point that he's making, right? So that this is how it works. And this is why he called for one of his uh, reforms would be for Google to disclose the algorithms that are behind its search production so that you could see exactly how they're generating the search results they are and bump that up against how they say their search results are determined. Yeah, I've seen it. He put 2.6 million at the lower end as much as as many as 10 million votes Google impacted in 2016. And so thinking about that and thinking about how many elections have been decided by a few hundred thousand voters spread across a handful of states and the numbers that Professor Epstein is talking about. Now, he's been criticized. That study's been criticized, not surprisingly, both methodologically as well as the uh, conclusions drawn and the, the, the magnitude of those conclusions. But even if it's a fraction of that, even if it's a fraction of that, it's still meaningful and it's an issue. And what we know about how these big tech companies are operating is that they are attempting to manipulate. So now we're going to say they're not effective at what they're trying to do on some scale. And with the, the uh, audience that they have, the size and scope of their platforms, yes, effective manipulation to some extent. And whether you want to argue about if is it a half a million voters or two and a half million voters or 15 million voters, you have collusion between big private big tech companies who are fraudulently spreading misinformation by preventing a lot of information from being allowed in the public arena, their platforms, and that has impact on those elections. Now, 
How do you want to handle it? And this is a conversation we need to have as a nation, and the Republican Party needs to join in, as Peter Hassan said, maybe with a little bit of a stick in addition to carrot as we move into the spring and summer. Watch, put, keeping a very close eye on what exactly Google, Facebook, Twitter, and these other platforms are doing. This is the Dan Patrick. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Well, since he used to be on our airwaves, I... uh, feel the need to tackle the uh, Joe Walsh story today, uh, he announcing on CNN, of course, where else, that uh, after he was unable to compete with Bill Weld's ground game in Iowa, he's uh, done with his silly little gambit uh, running for president of the United States after having left uh, the employee of the same company uh, in which I, uh, for which I'm employed. Uh, Joe Walsh uh, saying this on uh, CNN in terms of what he'll do next, what he'll do in this uh, 2020 election cycle, the the one-time, one-term congressman. I am ending my candidacy for president of the United States. Look, I got into this because I thought it was really important that there was a Republican, a Republican out there every day calling out this president for how unfit he is. I would rather have John Berman, a socialist in the White House, than a dictator than a king, than Donald Trump. And you thought Mitt Romney was an insufferable fraud? (laughs) You haven't seen anything else, anything yet. Here's the deal. Uh, I've known Joe Walsh for 25 years, and he's uh, always been a flim-flam man. And this is a cautionary tale that needs to apply to conservatives, too, including Salem Media, if I'm being real honest with uh, you, the listener, which I will always be. It's a mistake. Shouldn't have been on the airwaves. Flim Flam Man, always uh, changing his stripes to comport with his political interests, very short-term political interests. That's not just in the last uh, several months since he left and went on this uh, <laughs> this, this uh, presidential campaign. And I use that in quotation marks because the number of votes he got in Iowa, any person in this country could have gotten with their name on the ballot, having never stepped foot in Iowa. Handful of votes. I got. I have. There are, there are more people who live on my floor in my condo building than Joe Walsh got votes in Iowa. Okay, so that's not the issue. The issue is falling for the guy or gal who can recite some of the lines, maybe with some enthusiasm, maybe you know, visually represent something we 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 need more of. We need more young women in the Republican Party in conservative ranks. And so I'm going to suspend all of the standards of analysis I would normally use when sizing somebody up because Tommy Lahren is this young, attractive woman. And we need more people like that as our spokespersons. No scrutiny, no distinguishing between those who have read the books and those who can regurgitate a couple of the lines. And so what happens in the Tommy Lahren case? Because it's another case, many cases like this. The shiny object syndrome. She embarrasses herself with by ignorantly prattling on about uh, her support for abortion to the uh, to the the horror and chagrin of so many conservatives who were pumping her up five minutes earlier, but hadn't really done any sort of dive to assess the substance of a Tommy Lahren. No, she's a young woman. She can change. She can read the book. She can improve. 
you know, maybe she is a genuine. I don't know. I'm not looking into her heart. I'm just assessing her conduct and intellect and the things that she said. And so it goes the same for Walsh. Any look back at Joe Walsh, any vetting, when Joe Walsh was first ran for for Congress uh, 20 years earlier almost, he ran in the early 90s for Congress in Chicago suburbs against Sid Yates, who is in a in a big Democrat district. Sid Yates are 50 years in the, in Congress. And Joe Walsh ran as a liberal Republican, and his gimmick was riding a bicycle around the district. Then a couple of years later, he ran for state rep on the North Shore of Chicago, again, a liberal district. And he was a liberal Republican, too, mid, tried to middle the issues of life and other issues that weren't popular in a socially liberal district. And his gimmick was uh, driving a school bus around the around the district. Then he disappears for 15 years from the political scene, and pops up in 2010 in a crowded field in the Tea Party year that few could have few predicted, crowded field against a Democrat incumbent in the northwest suburbs of Chicago named Melissa Bean, who was asleep at the switch, didn't run a campaign, particularly after Joe Walsh won a crowded primary. Nobody had any particular money. He's got a good ballot name, had some support in the district because he embraced sort of the Tea Party movement that was afoot in opposition to Obamacare, wins the primary, and uh, because Bean is asleep at the switch, he uh, punches a lottery ticket in 2010 and is a one-term congressman, where he goes, continues with the gimmicks. You know, I'm sleeping in my office because I'm so fiscally conservative. Yay! And I, uh, I'm voting against uh, taxes and spending. Fine. That was the role that he was playing and needed to play in order to engender and maintain the Tea Party support that put him in office. But ultimately, as the story has happened in other states like Illinois, the suburbs completely cratered, the Republican Party non-existent, and uh, Joe Walsh is swept out to sea, and then he gets this radio gig where now the new thing is, what's the new thing? What's the new thing I latch on to? And then in 2015 and 2016, it was Trump. And then it was never Trump. And now it's, uh, whatever, prattling on about Trump the dictator. Things that not even never-Trumpers like Brett Stevens are saying as they're reassessing their never-Trump status. Never-Trumpers like Eric Erickson, who've converted to Trump because of the policy choices he's made, because of what he's actually done as president. Because, you know, once you get past the tweeting and the reality TV communication style, turns out that he's frankly, a fairly conventional center-right politician and an effective one, effective one, who's uh, enlisted support, King, enlisted the support of the Mitch McConnells of the world to put 191 judges on the federal bench and two on the Supreme Court in his first three years, using the Federalist Society essentially as his uh, outsourced operation to vet, to learn the lesson Learn the lesson for those who were snookered by Joe Walsh. Have a standard of analysis, whether it's the guy you listen to or girl you listen to on the radio or the guy or girl you're looking at for a particular public office. Kick the tires. Make sure that they've read some of the books. Make sure, and don't just recite the refrigerator magnet slogans. Make sure they know what they're talking about. Make sure they have something that resembles courage. Watch them over an extended period of time rather than just uh, allowing them to ride the zeitgeist of the time until it is of no longer use to them as they see it, and then they're off to ride somebody else's wave. 
trading it old friends for old enemies, as Mitt Romney is wont to do in a much more polished way than as Joe Walsh did. This is the Dan Prop Show. I just can't help the feeling I'm living a life of illusion. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Hey, it turns out the Kenyans are doing homework that Americans won't do. <laughs> this is fascinating. Philemon is part of the global industry of contract cheating in which students around the world use websites to commission their homework assignments. Philemon is a 25-year-old science researcher in Kenya, and uh, he uh, suggests that service providers like him uh, are academic writers or online tutors. They're not uh, cheaters per se. He writes, uh, my, or he, he says to this reporter who uh, respected uh, not using his last name, my clients have been uh, coming from various regions of the world. I have worked for a client in Australia and the U.S. In Kenya, very rare. He began uh, academic writing in 2017 when he was a university student seeking a flexible part-time job. Today, Philemon can make as much as 1000 bucks a month as long as he gets good grades for his clients. You have to make sure he gets an A so that in the future he will refer his or her friends to you, says Philemon. This is, right. this is very interesting, and I, I don't know why Philemon hasn't been snatched up by the uh, Joe Biden campaign, you know, now that Neil Kinnock's not available, right? In recent years, contract cheating, the report goes, has become lucrative, albeit informal, business in Kenya, which has become one of the largest sources of academic writers in the industry. By contracting uh, homework, original homework assignments, students are able to bypass the detection of anti-plagiarism software develop in the 1990s, right after Joe Biden's 1988 campaign. Sure, perfect timing, yeah. Today, uh, this uh, gentleman named Thomas Lancaster, who's a professor at uh, Imperial College London, who studies this uh, essay, uh, homework assignment contracting industry, he said today he estimates the global contract cheating industry is worth more than a billion dollars. Wow. And uh, he said, um, an an academic writer in... um, Kenya, more than 10 years, said uh, the contract industry takes the elephant's share of the money. Um, the uh, the Kenyans actually doing the work get uh, a small percentage of it. Websites promoting tutoring services and homework help serve as middlemen between students seeking to outsource their work and academic writers seeking cash. In much the same way as eBay or Craigslist, students set up online profiles that keep their identities anonymous, post details about their homework assignments uh, from the number of pages to the due date, and then these websites take 30% of the cut for a commission. So, for example, if a student is willing to pay 40 bucks per page for an essay, the Kenyan writer might only get 6%, or, or excuse me, $6 of that $40. So, you know, something like 12, 13%. Uh, it's, it's, it's just really, it's, it's, uh, it's something. It's, it also sort of smacks of like the escort industry online, too, meaning prostitution industry. Uh, but uh, this is going to be a boon, not just for uh, Joe Biden, potentially, but for Michael Bloomberg. Did you see this? The Intercept reported that Bloomberg plagiarized at least eight, at least uh, eight of his campaign plans that are on his website. Exact passages on at least eight Bloomberg plans or accompanying fact sheets, direct copies of material from media outlets, including CNN, Time, CBS and so on and so forth. You know, I get, you know, old habits die hard there with the septuagenarian uh, socialists of the left. But uh, 
uh, I don't know, now as this contract uh, cheating or writing industry gets more attention, uh, you know, always uh, good to follow the old adage, do your own work. This is the Damp Rock Show. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft. Show.com on Twitter at Dan Prof Show and at Dan Prof. And uh, bye bye Biden. That's a uh, op ed from uh, Jeet Her. It's getting hot in hair like Nelly. Jeet Her. Bye bye Biden. Ego. If that's true, then as the conventional wisdom right, that Clinton and Obama worlds will have to fall in with Michael Bloomberg as the only one who can stop Bernie and potentially win in November. So they think, well, You better scratch below the surface with Michael Bloomberg because he is a guy, to me, that is the exemplar of uh, one of my favorite observations about the rich self-funding candidate. Sometimes there's not enough money in the world to sell manure-smelling air freshener. Uh, And that's what Michael Bloomberg uh, is going to end up trying to sell. Uh, Joel Kotkin had a good piece about him, his authoritarian tendencies, speaking of authoritarianism, the left's accusation against Trump. He, he won't go peacefully if he loses the election. He, he'll, he'll go for a third term after if he wins re-election. Michael Bloomberg actually did that as mayor of New York City. He actually changed the law in New York so he could run for a third term. And he also has uh, very interesting observations in a 2020 context uh, replete throughout his career, including just a few years ago in 2016 with his uh, fellow members of the intelligentsia at Oxford. Listen to this. If you think about it, we, the intelligentsia, people who could make it into this room, um, we believe in a lot of things in terms of equality and protecting individual rights that make no sense to the vast bulk of people. They're not opposed to you having some rights, but there's a fundamental disconnect between us believing the rights of the individual come first And the general belief around the world, I think it's fair to say, that the rights of society comes first. And so um, I don't know how many are familiar with the the bathroom issue in in the United States. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you want to know, is somebody a good salesman, give them the job of going to the Midwest and picking a town and selling to that town the concept that some man wearing a dress should be in the locker room with their daughter. If you can sell that, you can sell anything. I mean, they just look at you and they say, what on earth are you talking about? And you say, well, this person identifies his or her gender as different than what's on their birth certificate. And they say, what do you mean? You're either born this or you're born that. Um, And, you know, I will say in our prison system in New York City, we have to have the policy when you walk in, you know, Drop your trousers, you go this way, you go that way. That's it, because you can't sit there and you can't mix things in a jail. That's a practical case of where you have to make a decision. But it's so many things that we are nuanced and um, the issue, the social issues that we're very proud of, uh, of achieving, aren't, believing, aren't believed by the vast bulk of the people. 
Oh, what a combination. He is a colossally arrogant prig who refers to himself as a member of the intelligentsia, the people who can get into this room that he's speaking in in Oxford, as opposed to the deplorables out there, the deplorables out there. It's it's his 47 percent moment right there. But then at the same time, he has been practical enough and was as mayor of New York City that he is in a position where he has to do nothing but apologize for so much of what he did as mayor of New York City for the positions he took. How about that statement on trans, given where the the uh, center of gravity is in the Democrat Socialist Party on cultural Marxism at present? It's going to be a rocky ride. I don't know if there's, a, as I said, enough billions in the world for Michael Bloomberg. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Roger Kimball. He's the editor of New Criterion, also a contributor to Am Greatness, American Greatness, at amgreatness.com. Roger, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My now, pleasure. Are you sure you want to describe uh, Michael Bloomberg as colossal in any way? <laughs> okay. Well, now. He's kind of mini Mike, isn't he? That's the president calls him mini Mike. That's right. As a credulous boomer rube, if you need me to replay that and slow it down so you can understand what Michael Bloomberg saying. I'm happy to do yes. it. Uh, yes. But yes. Uh, but what what about that? What about the whole intelligentsia thing? This is sort of what um, what so many uh, authors are writing about these days from uh, J.D. Vance to Michael Lynn, the yes. new class war. This, this is who they're talking about, Michael Bloomberg. Yes. Well, he, Michael Bloomberg, uh, you know, he was an OK mayor in some ways, but but he he is the nanny in, in charge. You know, he he wants to run your life. He thinks, well, if you if large sodas are bad for you, therefore we're going to ban them. Too much salt is going to uh, is bad for you, therefore we're going to uh, require that restaurants don't have salt shakers on the on the tables. You know, he is a walking epitome of what uh, Tocqueville warned about uh, in, in Democracy in America. How would despotism come to a democracy? Uh, Tocqueville asked. Well, it it won't it won't um, tyrannize over men the way that despotisms of old did. But it, it, it infantilizes people. How does it do this? It does it by the promulgation of ever more intricate rules and regulations that reach into the interstices of everyday life and sap energy, uh, innovation, individuality. It transforms people into a herd of sheep with government as the shepherd. And that is exactly what Michael Bloomberg uh, is, is all about. I mean, he, the, I, you know, it's it's ridiculous to think that that um, uh, I, I think it's ridiculous to think that he can get the nomination. Frankly, um, I mean, he's you know he was a Republican. He did support stop and frisk. I mean, it, it'd just be very easy to come up with a long list of policies that uh, the left uh, would abominate. You know, and if he does, uh, I think that Donald Trump will leave him alive. Uh, so he, he's uh, he's he epitomizes. Uh, the unaccountable deep state apparatchik that wants to run your life. And I think that uh, uh, the voters, when this is pointed out to them, uh, will will either repudiate him. I'll tell you what, you keep using words like instituercies. You may be able to get in that room in Oxford that Bloomberg was in. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think I don't think I'll be invited. I, I, have, I have that sense. If uh, if he does go uh, by the boards, Joe Biden, that is, mm-hmm. boy, that makes uh, the play that President Trump made on Tuesday night during his State of the Union speech all that more insightful and uh, pos- and and presents uh, greater possibility it could bear fruit. And the play I'm talking about, which the journal opined on, is the bid for the black vote that President Trump clearly made yes. during his speech. Yes. 
from uh, the recognition of the Tuskegee Airmen to the mom and, and daughter from Pennsylvania to Paul Morrow, <laughs> this uh, successful uh, entrepreneur who served our country in the military. He, he was clearly and, and, and this is one of something, you know, you have to do. You want you. Know, how can we get uh, more of the black vote? Conservatives say, well, one of the things is you have to make a formal appeal. You have to say, I really want you to be part of what we're doing here. And that's what Trump did on Tuesday night. Yes. And, and let's face it, his policies have have benefited uh, black Americans in an amazing way. Wages are rising. Unemployment is at historic lows. Uh, the black voters in this country are not stupid. They, they can see that this guy's uh, policies are, are helping all Americans, and including them. What, whereas the Democrats, of course, with all of their quote-unquote great society program, this is just a kind of a, a, a perpetuation of a new form of plantation where you have a, a, it's a dependency agenda that they have foisted on the American people, where you have a dependent class uh, composed uh, not entirely of, of blacks, but there's you know a lot of blacks so, uh, and, and um, uh, welfare recipients and so on, and a vast bureaucracy uh, to to nurture both nurture this this dependent class and uh, make sure that they stay dependent. And uh, I think that. You know, Trump's policies um, have been extraordinarily successful in, um, you know, energizing um, the economy at all levels, but especially uh, at, at the lower levels. It's, uh, so I think that he's going to pick up um, several percentage points of the black vote. And if that's the case, of course, that's it's curtains for uh, the Democratic politicians who have, um, you know, endeavored to perpetuate a system that makes sure that blacks stay second-class citizens. Well, and, and you know, let's face it, the Democratic yeah. Party was a party of slavery in the 19th century, of segregation and Jim Crow in the early 20th century, and now it's sort of the neo neo segregation of identity politics and and, and so on. And and uh, I think people are beginning to wake up to that. Yeah, in opposition to policies like school choice. But I, I Tim Scott, yeah. uh, senator from South Carolina, um, yeah. he, he also pointed out, you know, this. There's a this has a psychological impact too. He he said yesterday on Fox News, Democrats lose their minds when Trump uh, starts talking about bringing back more resources to the most vulnerable folks, including yeah. including African American families. It's just a brain; they're just brain explodes. So there's a psychological aspect to this as well. I mean, with respect yeah, to psychological warfare against the Democrats. Absolutely. Now he's he's uh, Trump has been uh, has been brilliant at at, at all that. I agree. And, uh, and Scott is, is uh, a real ornament to the party. Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion, contributor to American Greatness, amgreatness.com. We'll tweet out uh, his most recent columns, including on Trump's State of the State, uh, State of the Union address, excuse me, and as well as the walls closing in on the Democrats. Roger, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Oscars are Sunday night. I'll go through uh, some of the nominees in a second, I've seen uh, all of the Best Picture nominees except Jojo Rabbit and Little Wom- Little Women, although I did read the Louisa May Alcott version of Little Women, the original, uh, in school. And I'll get to that in a second because there's a good review in the Wall Street Journal about Little Women and helps explain why I didn't see it. 
But uh, I'm going to start with this uh, interview that uh, Denise McAllister, who is a Christian apologist and, and cultural commentator, gave at uh, HollywoodInToto.com. One of the questions she was asked, a recent Saturday Night Live skit reduced this year's Academy Award nominations to a single theme, white male rage. Is that fair? What do men have to be angry about? And, of course, the uh, SNL was white male rage because of uh, Joker, mainly. I guess you could argue the Irishman, too, uh, would be the other one. There's some other rage, by the way, that on screen in those Best Picture nominees, including in Parasite, which I'll also get to in a second. But here's uh, Denise McAllister's response to that. Is it fair? White male rage, is that fair? What do men have to be angry about? She uh, responds, I think men have a lot to be angry about. They're wrongly portrayed in film. They're treated as if they're privileged when they're not. Their achievements are coveted by those who haven't merited them. They are cast as villains as women play the victim. They're treated as if their natural masculinity is toxic and they're told to act more like women. They're treated unfairly in family court. They lose due process in sexual assault and harassment cases. We gave an example of that this week with the uh, recently uh, released Johnny Depp Amber Heard tapes. They are often put in the impossible position to prove the negative. They are generally treated with disrespect unless they kowtow to feminism. Their rights are threatened as women seek equality of outcomes instead of being satisfied with equality before the law. So, yeah, they have a lot to be angry about. They've been labeled and delegitimized as society says they, they've held their place in, in the sun for too long, and now they have to prove how woke and nice they are by allowing marginalized groups to take their place, whether those groups and individuals deserve it or not. Woo, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good riff, and it's uh, pretty accurate, too. Uh, the, the whole white male rage thing, uh, I, the, uh, the Joker, as well, as well as Parasite, is so much more about, um, quote-unquote, class. And, uh, again, I, I hate using that word because America is nothing if not a land of mobility. We don't have classes. We're not a cased system. But this is what it's speaking about. Use it from the Peggy Noonan, uh, a take from the Peggy Noonan parlance in her piece today uh, in the Wall Street Journal. The somebodies versus the nobodies. That's what it really is. Somebodies versus the nobodies. Particularly the Joker case, you know, the mob movie with De Niro and Pesci, sort of a different animal. Um, and, um, yeah, I, you know, the, 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 the mantras of the, the left and that so many men are you know, sort of browbeat into repeating, sort of they, they lose their agency about uh, women getting 70 cents on the dollar of men for the same work. It's not true, just materially not true. And all of the other things we know about um, men falling behind when it comes to uh, education level and attainment, uh, men uh, doing the most dangerous jobs, you know, the incidence of uh, on-the-job fatalities and injuries, men versus women, uh, the incidence of other destructive behaviors, men versus women, when it comes to the commission of crimes, when it comes to uh, drug and alcohol abuse. It's just such a more complicated picture than this uh, idea there are some, you know, that, that all white men have been conferred this special privilege and they, without, uh, without merit, and they lord over people who are otherwise deserving of the positions they illegitimately hold. That's essentially what she's getting to. And that's a fairy tale. In so many ways, I uh, should appreciate what she had to say. She um, uh, goes on to uh, address Hollywood's hostility to traditional gender roles. Hollywood should be shunned. <laughs> so I, maybe I shouldn't make predictions. And our culture needs to repent of its celebrity worship. With people willing to stand up for truth, there is hope for relations between men and women. History has a way of cycling back to normalcy. 
The sad thing is, says McAllister, societies often have to go through terrible trials and tribulations to wake up to reality. Historically, that's often been brutal. We can pray for revival and do what I'm trying to do to wake people up to the trajectory we're on. But sometimes prophets aren't heard. They're left yelling from the mountaintops, watching the devastation of rebellion below. But despite this, we can't remain silent. We must speak, even if no one hears. And uh, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I, I also think, though, that we can enjoy artistic accomplishment, even if it's by people who disagree with us politically, even if it's by people who don't get it. And so, I mean, for example, and I'm not even making a political comment here, but just in terms of some of the movies nominated for Best Picture, I mean, 1917, Sam Mendes's film was a tour de force. It's an incredible movie. Parasite, the South Korean film, actually would be my pick for Best Picture. I thought that the way Parasite handled class issues in South Korea, uh, where it is more of a caste system, certainly not the mobility of America, uh, the um, the presentation of the well-to-do family and the presentation of the lower-income family that goes to work for the well-to-do family a little bit at a time, I thought was uh, fairly textured. It wasn't uh, as on the nose as you would expect from Hollywood when it comes to them you know, pretending that they're aligned with the uh, the uh, struggling, upwardly mobile family that embodies all the wonderful virtues of humanity while the rich family, again, sort of benefits illegitimately from privilege, as goes the narrative. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case in Parasite. It's actually well done. So that was very, that was very good. And actually, Marriage Story, Adam Driver and uh, Scarlett Johansson, that was uh, a pretty nuanced look at, uh, at a marriage that breaks up. Uh, not the, neither one is the bad, the bad guy. It's just more complicated than that. And there's a kid involved. So of course that's the real complication. Uh, but, uh, Adam Driver's an excellent actor. Scarlett Johansson certainly has her moments and she was good in marriage story. And again, you know, it's fun when you see people that have the talent, acting talent and everything that goes into a movie actually put some thought into it to get beyond cheap one dimensional caricatures to tell a real story that may actually have some currency and be more reflective of the complications of the uh, of the lives so many people live, may speak to more people because it's not so manichaean, it's not black and white, there are a lot of gray areas, there doesn't need to be, uh, each principle is both sometimes a good person and a bad person, which is how we all actually are. It reminded me very much of the, um, the movie uh, Blue Valentine with Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams which I would also uh, describe similarly. Thus, that's why it reminded me of that. But anyway, I like uh, there's some very good movies that are worth checking out uh, for your free time. And I'm a bit of a cinemaphile and uh, Parasite would be my choice for best picture. And even though he's being perceived as lobbying for it, I got to say, um, I don't know if he'll get it, but I like uh, I like Joaquin Phoenix for uh, for best actor. And maybe I'm still a little biased towards Joaquin Phoenix, regardless of some of his antics. And, uh, you know, you can't tell whether he's putting you on with all of his recent pronouncements on political issues and and finally revisiting his brother River's death and so on and so forth. You can't tell if he's lobbying or or having a put on with you. But I'm a little biased with him because I still uh, really love his performance as Johnny Cash and Walk the Line. Johnny Cash, my favorite recording artist of all time. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's worth checking out some of these movies and enjoying some of the performances. It's, uh, it's an expression of artistic 
accomplishment. And you don't have to watch the self-congratulatory award show to enjoy the work product. This is the Dan Prof Show. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Where there's this uh, big think piece in uh, Political Magazine about uh, a theory advanced by. Uh, political scientist at Christopher Newport University in Hampton Roads uh, area of Virginia. Her name is Rachel Beitkoffer, and she predicted with fairly uh, fairly good accuracy the outcome of the 2018 midterm elections. And she starts from sort of this negative partisanship theory of electoral turnout, which is uh, it's not so much about party affiliation. It's about party disaffiliation. In other words, I'm voting for the Republican because I hate the Democrat more. I'm voting for the Democrat because I hate the Republican more negative partisanship. And so elections are about turning out your people, not so much about uh, uh, persuading the persuadable middle. The theory uh, she takes to the next level is that there's no such thing as a swing voter, that uh, we are so polarized in our politics that it is not about persuasion anymore. It's strictly a function of turnout. People don't change their minds. Now, there's been much criticism of her dogmatism on that topic, and rightly so, because there's a lot of evidence that suggests she's dead on wrong, that uh, there were uh, real moves from people who voted for Obama in 2012 and voted for Trump in 2016. Yes, turnout is obviously a factor, and it's an important one. It may be the preeminent one, but it's not the only one. And I say that because it dovetails nicely with this piece by Maureen Callahan, the New York Post, about uh, the polarization of America, which has become this thing that uh, pundits continue to rinse and repeat as they describe uh, the disintegration of our social fabric they say is happening because we're so polarized over our politics. Well, are we? Is it that bad? Yeah, people could have strong political opinions, but are we so polarized that we can't enjoy a show from an artist who is doesn't agree with our politics or, or see a movie with an actor who does who's an outspokenly... Uh, antagonistic towards our politics? Maybe not. Maybe not. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Maureen Callahan, who is a writer and editor for The New York Post, author of the New York Times bestseller American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. Maureen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So we're divided. I mean, you know, there's strong opinions about uh, Trump for the obvious starting point, pro and con. But does that extend to every other facet of the lives we lead? And you argue in your piece, I think, fairly persuasively that it doesn't. I think it's something that we hear day in and day out, no matter what media you're consuming. You know, whether you're watching Fox or whether you're watching MSNBC or whether you're reading the New York Times and the New York Post, we're constantly being fed this I think, somewhat hysterical narratives that America has never been more divided. We are a country tearing ourselves apart. In fact, when you look at polling on issues, on things that affect Americans in the day-to-day of their real, actual lives, we agree on far more than we disagree. And that ranges on everything from the economy to health care to gun control. I mean, we agree on far more. And so I find this 
this this constant drumbeat, uh, a, a bit uh, hectoring and difficult to believe. You can only hear the skies falling so many times. Yeah, and you 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 said a few examples too. Where uh, let's just start with Ellen DeGeneres sitting next to George W. Bush at a football game, and of course, you know the blue check mafia on Twitter of the left goes uh, goes ape crazy over over this. How could she? He's a warmonger. He lied, and people died. Blah 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 blah. And then it dissipates quickly, and uh, Ellen doesn't really suffer any consequence from it. Uh, she's still got her show. <laughs> she's still making millions of dollars. Uh, people have forgotten about it other than to use it as, a, as an example in advance of a point like you're making. Exactly. You know, if there were real consequences to that action, she would have lost sponsors. You know, her ratings would be tanking. She might be suspended. Instead, what we're seeing is exactly what you referenced, that sort of the the, the fury the self-righteous fury of the online Twitter mob, you know, and in my piece, I talk about how this sort of animus is, is being um, encouraged and amplified by the very uh, social media um, uh, apps that were, were touted and, and build themselves as bringing us together, right? Uniting us, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all this. And, and instead, we're finding that it's actually just everybody's retreating to their corners and uh, fighting it out online. But again, it's, it's kind of a virtual fight. And I, I find, at least when I go about my day-to-day life, that stuff isn't really impacting me or my workers or my friends in, in any real-world way. When we come back, I want to talk more about that, the idea of connected makes us better. Does it? Uh, we're talking to Maureen Callahan, writer and editor for the New York Post, uh, author of the New York Times bestseller, American Predator, the hunt for the most meticulous serial killer of the 21st century. We'll be right back with more Maureen Callahan. Anything you want, you got it. Anything you want. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with the New York Post, Maureen Callahan, also best-selling, New York Times best-selling author. We were talking about uh, how divided we are or we aren't and whether yeah, this idea that the social media is going to make us more connected and that's going to lead to uh, better, more robust, more fulfilling lives because we're going to make those interpersonal connections uh, that much easier. Is that how it's working out? I think at this moment we're seeing you know, people taking to their keyboards or their phones and uh, spouting things online they would never dare say to someone's face. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, and I think it's led to um, a coarsening of the dialogue. I think, you know, it's when you see news media, when the president was giving his speech yesterday and he was calling the the, the entire impeachment process bullshit. Right. And it, so, so now bullshit is part of the lexicon that's like perfectly acceptable. There, there's no, you know, blanking out of the ostensible uh, profanity. You know, that's that's what's happening. And I think we just have to be very careful that, that things that we would never think to say 
in the real world to people whose expressions we could read if we said something so hurtful, you know, that we allow it to, to bleed into to our to our actual interpersonal dynamic now, and Lester, into the body politic at large. Now, Lester Holt did apologize on behalf of the nation. He was very hurt by that. But, uh, yeah, your point uh, is uh, is a salient one nonetheless. And I just think about um, yeah, you talk about sort of the Internet cowboys uh, that say tough things online so tough also though that sort of the self-righteousness the op- looking for opportunities to jackpot your fellow man or woman uh looking for opportunities to say look at me look how morally pure i am uh, perhaps there's no currency to it when you go after an ellen or a dave Chappelle. perhaps there's no currency because people see it as for what it is it's not there's no righteous part of the self-righteousness it's just self-indulgence and so it just is fleeting. No matter how many retweets you get, it just doesn't have any real uh, gravitas to it. Exactly. And, you know, that stuff tends to exist in an echo chamber of self-reinforcing like mine, uh, which, which it further points to, you know, how cowardly and impotent it is. And in my piece, I, I, uh, I referenced Barack Obama speaking about cancel culture and speaking about wokeness. And this idea of intellectual and moral purity uh, and what a falsity it is. And, you know, he, he was speaking to a group of people. I, I believe it was at a university somewhere. And he said, you know, I, I, this idea of, of this kind of purity and wokeness and self-righteous anger and this idea that, you know, people are, you have got to get over this. You know, the world is complicated. People are messy. There are ambiguities. Someone you really like and admire can do something wrong, and you have to be an adult and grapple with this. And I think that that point could not be better taken. Well, except that I saw some of the response to that. And of course, you had those same people that we're discussing who need to hear that message run to Twitter and say, OMG, Barack Obama's a conservative. Um, I know. You know, I mean, the that, irony. Yes. You know, you got to chip away as best you can. <laughs> I, I suppose. I suppose that's true. You know, and the other thing, just since I brought up Chappelle, I mean, Chappelle is sort of the rare example of of lampooning the woke left. You know, mostly it's conservatives who have to endure the lampooning from uh, entertainers and the and uh, the cultural elites and so forth and just focus on the, the things they do well, playing an instrument or acting or telling mm-hmm. jokes or whatever. But uh, the Chappelle making fun of his audience, I'm I'm in imitating you. I'm parroting you. This is this is what's wrong. It's you and them laughing along like they're in on the joke. Maybe they actually are in the joke in on the joke to some extent. And I, I, I go to this other uh, example you referenced the author of American Dirt, who was, uh, you know, pilloried for how dare she not being a person who came here illegally tell some story about the tri- the, the the trials and tribulations of a of a family trying to make their way from Mexico to this country illegally. It's inauthentic. It's cultural appropriation, and it's number two on the Amazon bestseller list. Uh, and 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 so you know, almost it's almost like you want to draw out those people because then the counter reaction is going to both sides of that are going to accrue to your benefit in terms of raising your profile, whether it's for uh, appearance fees as a comedian or it's to sell books as an author. Yeah, it's truly amazing. I mean, to go back to your uh, initial point about Dave Chappelle, I wrote about this when his special uh, began streaming last year and so many on the left were calling for Dave Chappelle to be canceled over some jokes he made. Right. And, and his larger, more subtle point went right over their heads 
which was, you know, you on the left are all too willing to cancel people at, at a, you know, for the tiniest infraction. And what are we doing and what does it mean? You know, and what are we losing? What are we losing when we say you offend me and so you must be gone? Your platform must be demolished. With the American Dirt author, it's been very interesting for me to watch the whiplash amongst the the people on the left, you know, that sort of that wokeness culture. The book was has been touted by everyone from Oprah Winfrey to Stephen King, I mean heavyweights. Uh, and then once this backlash began fomenting online, and I guarantee you, like, the average American probably has no idea what we're talking about. Really. Uh, this backlash began fomenting, and within, you know, 24 hours, her publisher canceled her book tour, citing specific and legitimate threats to the safety of the author and those who might attend. Yeah, right. In that same press release, they then said, but we're going to be having a series of town halls. <laughs> to discuss this with the author. So that's the same thing, except it now has this intellectual varnish. The crowd will be bigger. Her book will sell more. Everybody wins. And uh, lastly, I just want to add a coda, which is last summer, a, a legendary Irish author named Edna O'Brien, who was in her 90s, published a novel called Girl. And it was told from the perspective of an 11-year-old, I believe, Somali girl who is kidnapped by ISIS fighters, and she and her friends are subjected to all kinds of sexual torture. You know, there was a tiny, tiny question raised, should a white Irish woman in her 90s be writing this? But because the book was so well written, that question vanished, as it well should. Yeah. The real problem people seem to be having with American Dirt is it's poorly written, and it traffics in stereotypes. And that's an intellectual argument with some heft. But the rest of it is just, you know, a, a, a bunch of, you know, let's paraphrase the president. Yes. yes. <laughs> she is Maureen Callahan, writer and editor for The New York Post, author of The New York Times bestseller, American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. Maureen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And boy, uh, the uh, conversations about our politics and now our culture just seem to be dominated by septuagenarians, don't they? Or uh, very near to it. Uh, I guess it's never too late to quit. Clean your life up. Turn it around. Get right with, uh, I don't know, mind and body and spirit. Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, who, uh, of course, is uh, essentially synonymous with cockroaches when it comes to ability to survive, in, in his case, a self-inflicted lifestyle. He uh, has announced that he quit smoking. He told New York radio station that he's been cigarette-free since October. He's 76 years old. So he's got, uh, what, five months of uh, cigarette-free. Remarkable. <laughs> Remarkable. It's, I'm sure his lungs thank him, but uh, wow. Uh, this uh, following on his uh, ending... He said he said uh, that he pretty much pulled the plug on drinking by the end of 2018. 
So he's got, you know, two years where he's uh, he still enjoys a glass of wine or a beer, but um, uh, apparently not, uh, you know, party drinking, binge drinking like he did for, say, oh, I don't know, the last 55 years uh, and smoking for the same. He also said of uh, drug use in general, he finally got to a place where he doesn't find them interesting. He says that uh, drugs are very institutionalized and bland. He's on to the next thing. You know, this is, uh, I guess, if everybody's doing it or it becomes uh, passe, then uh, it loses its appeal. I don't know. The Stones are kicking off, yes, kicking off their aptly named No Filter Tour in May. Mick Jagger, by the way, obviously another septuagenarian. Uh, he's in a movie. I just saw a trailer for a movie. He's in Burnt Orange Heresy. He's been in other movies, but it seems like it's been a while. Not getting great reviews, by the way. But the Burnt Orange Her- Heresy, where he plays some reclusive art uh, art uh, patron of sorts. Uh, anyway, so he's out there uh, making movies, as well as I guess he's going to go on this tour with the Stones, uh, as is Keith Richards, who's now uh, clean and generally sober. It's uh, it's sort of remarkable. Sort of remarkable, these guys, especially on the uh, tour piece of it. I remember going to Soldier Field in like 1996 for the Rolling Stones' farewell tour. <laughs> oh, man, who would have thunk it? The uh, 76-year-olds who can still rock and apparently act once they're off the sauce. This is the Dan Prof Show. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.